fighting over dead and gone people, isn't there? You notice this? A lot of people fighting about people who are, who are long gone from the world. <laughs> but, you know, we fight over what they did and said, and was it good or bad, and, and uh, if there's a statue of them somewhere, we better go tear that down. There's a lot of anger about people who, uh, who are long gone. And the truth is, um, it's not just your uh, traditional conservative church-going person that admires some people and 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 is was affected by some people and believes in some things from people who are long gone. The people tearing stuff down from public places and causing uh, chaos and vandalism, they don't even know it, most of them, but they also got a lot of their thinking and a lot of the way they believe from people who who are also long gone just the same just the same the same so it's not it's not just one side that well you guys and and in fact even furthermore i said this to someone they said well you know just a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, dead european types and people from and i said well you know it's interesting i've been studying this and all i've read all we've done so far a bunch of guess what dead european types <laughs> we talked about Karl Marx, we talked about all those Germans and French people. That's where they get their ideas. So turns out turns out we could say we could say to some of them, um, I prefer my statues to yours. I'll take my dead guys over your dead guys. You know? Because my dead guys go way way beyond those guys on the statues anyway. Um uh, I, I go back to some guy. I go back to some dead guys from thousands of years ago, <laughs> and prominently one who's no longer a dead guy. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, he was. I uh, can't say that about any of the others. So we talked about those people. So that then brings us to modern times. I say like most of what we talked about, people who are long gone. It's important to know it because the ideas came from somewhere. But now we get up to something that is more contemporary. And if you thought some of the former beliefs we talked about from those people was a little bit weird, buckle up, okay? Because it just gets weirder. Uh, so that so then one of the um, one of the concepts that now has has turned up, and this is very recent, very recent, is something that goes by the name intersectionality. The adjective would be intersectional. Now, in order to get here tonight, I drove through a few intersections. But, you know, so the word word refers to more than one thing. This is as a specific understanding. And basically, we have to understand this because remember, remember now that the view that Marx had, good old Marx, was materialistic. He didn't think about spiritual things. He thought everything is just about material factors, you know, your your economic status and your circumstance. That's all that really matters. That's all it's all about. That's the only thing we should worry about or try to change. Didn't even consider the spiritual. And that was that. That's why he was materialist. But this new concept, this intention, this intersectionality, expands those material factors. Expands them to a lot more things. A lot more things that have to do with your identity and my identity. And what do I mean by identity? You notice there's a reason some people call this identity politics. Have you ever heard that phrase? 
identity politics. That's why they call it, because it's very focused on identity. And now look, we believe in identity. Everybody has an identity. We've, we've, we read and we preach and sing and talk about ourselves, where we, how we see ourselves. We, we, we are called and taught and really commanded to see ourselves a certain way, to locate our identity where and how. What did you say? Our identity. I mean, we are, first of all, obviously we are all in the image of God, created by God. And then we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. We would, we, those, are the, those are the key things for us. But this is a different way to think. These are material identity factors. These are physical only. So they focus on categories that prominently include things like gender, race, um, sexual orientation. Yeah, I know you're familiar with what they're getting at there. And then obviously also your economic status. And the the notion of identity can can be really tricky because some people can begin to identify in ways that they do not appear that they are. Hmm, gets a a little, there's a subjective part to this. I identify as, you know? But you you start to put these together into some kind of a combination. Sometimes it'll include even other things like um, whether or not you are able-bodied versus disabled, whether you are citizen versus immigrant, whether you are thin versus what they now call, quote, fat-bodied. They're, that's their term now. you got to keep up with what's appropriate to say anymore. That's, that's what they choose. But, but you know what? Some of them even include whether or not you are of the majority religion, which is always considered Christian, because it's all very America-centered, the way they think. Christian, as they see it, versus a minority religion, like any, which would be any other. Okay, so let me let me let me explain further. So where where this comes from? They say it comes from around 1989 or 91. That's that's how that's how really old this is. <laughs> Those are the ancient roots of this. Of this concept, this is all very just brand new stuff. So, in 1989, there was this uh, there was this UCLA uh, law professor, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. She she started to te- she started teaching on critical race studies. Remember critical theory? That's what she was she was teaching on that. And she used this word. Uh, she used it in the title of a Stanford Law Review article. She had she had used it in a couple of others as well. And what she said was this. She said, you know, this came out of feminist writing, this intersect. She said, you know, I'm all about that, and I'm a feminist, and I'm, she's talking about feminism, but she said, you know, there's something else. I happen to not be white, and I'm a woman too. So I have kind of these two things going on at once, which means that in the, in the um, analysis of this, in the critical theory element of this, I have, I've got these two factors, not just one. So that, in other words, if you're a woman, then you are part of the op- more oppressed class, and the men are in the oppressor class. Remember, you kind of have good and bad. You have those that are the privileged, and those that are the underprivileged, or the marginalized, or the oppressed. Everything's always like this. But now you have to see it in, along every different line. So if it's gender, then it's man over woman. Man's in the oppressor class. He's the privileged one. She's not. But then she said, I'm also not white. So I'm in the 
oppressed class in two ways. I'm a two-time oppressed person. <laughs> and this is and and this is the intersection. What's that? Three, she's a lawyer. Yeah, right. In your intersectional matrix, that's definitely got to be true. Um, you know, it's it's so so. This is where it came from. The this idea that we these things are these things are intersecting. You see, and you got all these other things about you too. And everything I'm telling you, of course, right now is uh, is is in print for you to make it easy. And you know, because it's easier to read it and see it. I'm not. I may not be saying every word. Uh, so Jeremy is passing those out to you right now. But you know, you think about it. Okay, I get. I guess I kind of get what she's saying. That's an interesting concept. So you have these two factors about you. They intersect. Okay. Okay. Fine. Well, the word really caught on. This idea and this word really took off. Oh, intersectional. Interesting concept. And lots of other people started thinking it was an interesting concept. I'll take one of those, my man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Pay no attention to the weird little... I have no idea why I did that. Yeah? Well, at least we got something off the presses. Because, because I want to get to in a second what's on the back side of the first page, which is a really handy thing that we'll have to study for a second. Right now, I'm still just looking at some of this stuff on the first page. Some of these items that I'm, I've been talking about are printed there on the first page. So you see, then, how quickly this caught on from the early 90s. Everyone starts using it. It, gets, it, it makes it into mainstream, such that by 2015, the dictionaries include it as a new word. Now, it's, now it makes it. So the, you see there, the Oxford English Dictionary added this word, intersectionality. And they they gave it this definition. The interconnected nature of social categorizations, such as race, class, and gender, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Merriam-Webster put it like this, intersectionality. The complex, cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, and classism, combine, overlap, or intersect, especially in the experience of marginalized individuals or groups. That's a little bit of a mouthful, but I think you read through the two, you start thinking about this, okay, I guess I see what they're saying. And you know, it must have been that people started to just assume that everyone understood this, because as you see, this was mainstreamed enough for a for a presidential candidate, okay, in 2018, a New York Senator uh, Gillibrand, uh, to while she's running for the nomination. So she has a lot of followers, and people are paying attention. This is a very public person at this point. Sent a tweet saying that the future is quote female and intersectional. She must have assumed people know what I mean when I say that to a million people or however many. And then not long after that, um, you know, one, one of the Hollywood actresses from the stage of the Oscars used the word in almost the same way. So people start using it. People start assuming that this is a, something important. And you can see how this then is, can easily fit in with everything we've already said about this business of critical theory. Because now, that basic narrative, that old Marxist critique of things, now has all these new identity markers to, to examine. 
All of these descriptors about everybody so that now they, you have all these new ways in which you could be privileged or the opposite. And not just in the old ways, not just in those old simple Marxist ways where you, you're, either in the, you're either part of the poor working force or you're the rich guys that own the stuff. That's very simplistic. Now it's along all these lines. You might be an oppressed minority in all kinds of ways. Racially, yes, but also sexually or physically by how, you're, how you look you're, or culturally or whatever. You, you name it. Because is not the world full of all kinds of different people when there are all kinds of disparities, aren't there? I mean, you start going down the list. Is the, the world is far from being completely equal with everything. There are some people that are musically gifted and some people are not. Some people are athletically gifted and some people are not. So, you know, some people just have natural intelligence and some people don't have so much. There's just all kinds of things where we are all very different. And if I really go nuts with this, I could, I could begin to... That, you know, it's one. It's one of the, frankly, one of the problems this way of thinking has is it doesn't tell me how or when it comes to an end. <laughs> you know, can I keep going? Can I just keep on trucking? Can I expand this further? Can I say I'm oppressed? I, you know, if if uh, lots of people can sing well and I can't, I'm oppressed. I'm one of the ones who can't. You have music privilege, or there's a hundred different things. You know, we could do. Um, and maybe they will someday. You already see so many. Well, this began to turn up then in lots more books and articles and essays, and of course in studies offered at universities. And some of the some of the people in big business started feeling the pressure to, you know, bring in experts in these things to train their employees because after all, we want to be one of those companies that doesn't it isn't guilty of these systemic problems of uh, the downtrodden and the oppressed. We want to be a company that understands. So we will bring in the diversity experts, the people who write these kind of things. We'll bring them in and they can train our people all about it and tell them all about it. And this is going on all the time. So now on the back page to my chart, and I'm, I'm sorry, some of those words are small and you will have to squint. And those reading glasses will have to go on if you hope to see some of those words. I got this as big as I could. I didn't create this. This was created by advocates for this. Also, this also wasn't put together by people who are studying it from the outside or who oppose it. This is something people who are on board with this made this. And I've seen it replicated other times. It's, in other words, versions of it are very common. I've seen it turn up in other places They're looking about like this one. Some of the words change because you can sort of choose which categories you go with. It takes you a second to study it to figure out what they're doing. But just in describing it, you see what they've got this, what sometimes they call it the intersectional wheel, you know. I saw someplace call it the wheel of oppression. <laughs> but you've got you've got this perfect circle here, when these this pie chart looking thing. And the top half are all of the all of the attributes in these different categories where you are a privileged person. Where you're more you're the dominant class, you're 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 on the side of what is considered the norm and part of the system. Whereas below the line are the antithesis or the opposite ends of each of those categories and you're on the underprivileged or oppressed class in those regards. Now we see the ones that are normal. We say, oh, okay, you start there on the left side with just the gender one. Okay. Well, first you, 
And notice there's a difference. There's the one that's just where the line is male, and then if you and then if you follow it through the through the middle down to the downside, it's just female, because males would be on the top half, and females on the bottom. But notice that other one that looks stranger, where it says male and masculine, or female and feminine. What they mean by that is that on the top half in the privileged class would be those who are what they now call it's a new it's a new term. You wouldn't have learned it in school, I bet. Uh, those are people that you would now call cisgendered. And what they mean by that is, what it's what you and I would just call um, normal. That's part of the point. They would probably say, yeah, see, see, normal, see? That's the whole point. What I mean is, you were born either male or female, and you've always just been that. And you're comfortable enough that you are that, and... You know, that's pretty much what you know you are. And, uh, you, know, you know, you're not confused about it. That's what that means on that side. If you follow that line to the other side, you see they call that gender deviance. And these are the people today who say they're not sure what they are, or they're the opposite of what their body tells them, or they go back and forth, or they're in a third category that doesn't fit either one. That's what they mean. Some of this needs real interpretation. But look at all those categories. You've got, obviously, white versus non-white on the bottom. European heritage would be versus non-European heritage. You've got heterosexual versus LGBTQ, wealth versus poverty. You've got credentialed, is the very, that very top, which is funny, versus non-literate. So even educational differences put you either privileged or not. There's... Uh, some of us in here might say, I'm on, I'm on board with this. You've got young at the, on the top half and old on the bottom. Oh, so if you're... T they call that ageism. See, you notice that the lines on the top, along those lines, you see written, written on each of those lines are the thing that the oppressor could be guilty of. And frankly, for most of these people, they assume you just are guilty of it. Because you're... Just by virtue of being in that class, you are, you are guilty. So, genderism, sexism, racism... Eurocentrism, heterosexism, right? Um, disableism means that you've got you, you're against the the, uh, the disabled. Ageism means you, yeah, yeah. See, you guys, some of you guys ready to go march in the streets over it? Yeah. I mean, for a little while, you got bedtimes, you know. <laughs> but not gonna stay out as late. But you see all of that. Um, it's interesting, even language. Language bias. You've got Anglophones on the top half. English is an additional language on the bottom. So you're in the oppressed class. If your English wasn't... That's, this is all very... So notice how centered this is right here. And you show this to someone overseas, they'll be like, not where I live. <laughs> where I live, that's not, that's not how that works. Uh, light and pale skin. There's an interesting phenomenon, even among the non-white, that these guys talk, these guys are into. And that is what they call colorism. Where some people, non-white people, whose skin is lighter. Maybe on the uh, privileged class and the oppressed. Now, this is actually true in many parts of the world, because I've been to some of them and I've seen it. India is one example, and there are others. But this is part, all of this. Um, look at that, look at one of them, fertile versus infertile. If you are able to have biological children, so you're in that top half. You see how this works? this wheel, you see how they're just laying out all these identity markers for everybody to size up where they fit. And 
some people, of course, have looked at this and said, you know, it's almost as if we're, it's almost as if we're trying to score ourselves. <laughs> like, what's your number? You know, depending on where you stand. And who cancels out whom? Because some people might have two or three on top, two or three on bottom. And they actually write this. They actually explain this in their books and seminars. And you can actually look at PowerPoints that they've put together where you see their points. And they will talk about how a person can be privileged with regard to some aspects of their identity and marginalized or oppressed with regard to others. And, and I don't know how you settle these disputes. So let's say you have a disagreement or opposition between two people. One of them is a, a gay white man who's an immigrant from somewhere. The other one is a straight female who's Hispanic. Do you see how each of them cancels out? It's like, I got three oppressed things and a couple of uh, privileged things. So do you. See what I'm saying? It would depend on how they're looking at it. Well, I'm a woman and you're a man, so that means you're... Yeah, but I'm gay and you're straight, so that means you're... Yeah, but I'm an immigrant and you're a citizen, so that means you're the one who's the oppressed. See what I'm saying? Uh, it sounds a little strange to you, right? And it sounds like it could devolve into some childish debates about who is more oppressed. I'm more of a victim than thou is kind of the game. And some people have referred to these kind of things as things like the oppression Olympics. And we do have a strange phenomenon in our culture that I don't know that this has ever been true in the past. Um, maybe it has, but it's the phenomenon of seeking to be or wanting to be a victim. That is, maybe not, maybe not really wanting to be a victim, but more precisely, wanting to be able to identify yourself as a victim. Wanting others to see you as a victim. That strikes me as very odd, because it seems to me that in all the years past, and when I was growing up, it seems to me that sane and respectable people, if they ever were victimized... They, they certainly weren't looking to be, but if they ever were victimized, would have the tendency to not broadcast their victimization, but instead to conceal it, not wanting to be seen as a victim. And that's not how it is now. And you know how you can know that, that, this is, that this strange phenomenon is taking over? by the sheer number of fake victimization stories. And this is a, this is a very, I mean, psychologists must be having a field day trying to figure this out. But increasingly there are numbers of stories of people who claim things that happened and it was made up. Or there have been people, more than one, spray paint messages on their own house. Then they say, look at this. Somebody, look at the hate speech on my house. I'm a victim. And it'll turn out they did it. And what could be your motive other than you? So it's odd because of all the ways you might bring attention to yourself and get into the spotlight, that to me seems like the last way I would want to. How can you enjoy your fame if your fame is just the fame of being victimized? 
Like, it's like you're on the news and they're showing your house and you're like, Hi, Mom! Look at me, I'm on TV! It's weird is what it is. And yet this has been happening. There are some, In fact, there have been some pretty elaborate hoaxes. You know, there was one guy who paid people to go through all this stuff. And, I mean, you know, they'll play... I mean, or, or it's just... Or people mistake innocuous things. And here come cameras, and here and the and here is make the headlines. Will, you know, there was the there was there was what was thought to be a noose discovered. So, you know, there was there was what some people thought were um, sort of like I don't know uh, gallows hung from trees in a San Francisco park. I think it was. Come to find out, this guy shows up, and he wasn't a white guy either. And he says, he says I put those there. I, I made a ropes course to work out out here in the park. I'm using them to work out. Well, well, not before the news had rushed out there and said, oh, "Look at this display of hatred," and you know, and, and as somebody observed not long ago, it's almost as if we have a supply and demand problem. The supply of actual terrible racist incidents cannot keep up with the demand for them. You know, the demand for victimization wants to be met. And we don't have enough of it, so we got to start making it up and inventing it. It's a weird phenomenon for sure. Uh, but unfortunately, if we take people when they're young and we indoctrinate them at young ages into all of this stuff, all of this, what you can teach them. And, and you know, some of us have raised kids. Is it not already in human nature to play the victim? And to, and to whine and say, oh, it's unfair. Oh, I've been put upon. Oh, I deserve. Oh, I'm entitled to. Or it's not, you know, that's, that's, that's human nature. When we're kids, we all do it. We all pretend that we're put upon and we're getting a raw deal and it's not fair. And I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And we're almost just rewarding that mentality and encouraging that mentality. And then when they get big, now, now they can do worse than just throw a fit in the corner. Now they can burn your city down. Because now there are tantrums. There are bullets flying around when they have tantrums. And it's, it's really uh, pretty disturbing. But, it, you know, as it says here, you know, this is also very subjective because it's focused on your lived experience, which is a phrase you hear a lot in these literature. Lived experience, my lived experience. And built into this is a sort of, um, I don't know what I would call it. Um, it's almost, there's almost a wizardry involved here where whatever my intersectional matrix is, that gives me power that I'm in this unique position and you can never know. You, can, you can't even talk about it. One gentleman who I really like um, went to the seminary that I did and he, uh, he is actually now the dean of an African uh, university um, in Africa. And he, he's born in Los Angeles, uh, Vodi Bakum. And he, he calls it ethnic Gnosticism, Gnosticism with a G. Because remember the Gnostics, uh, the Gnostics claimed to have secret knowledge. It was their, sort of their religious knowledge, it's secret knowledge, and I have it. And I can't explain it to you, and I can't, and I'm not going to try to defend it. Or, you just have to get it. I've got it, and you have to get it. What's that? And 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 getting woke is sort of the, the experience by which you gain the knowledge. And it's and it's the it's it's gnostic in that you can't question it because it's mine. 
and I know. So, if I am a, you know, female, you know, gay, um, you know, Hispanic, just whatever I am, I can put all that together and I can say, that's what I am. And because I'm those things, um, that's my lived experience. So you can't teach me anything. I don't have to listen to you. You don't know what I know. You didn't walk in my shoes. And it's almost as if I will only... So you're going to have... I guess for, for me to be teachable, for me, for me to listen to someone and maybe learn from them or hear a criticism of... You're going to have to bring in someone who at least matches my intersectional score. You know? But don't bring me some... Don't bring me some white Christian guy. I ain't listening to him. He doesn't. What's he? His he scores low on this, on this thing. He's way down here at the bottom. He doesn't have what I have. I've got the. You know what I'm saying? Like the, there's some special, almost like you get a degree for that. For for how you, I award you the degree of intersectional. You know, it's it's, and and you know when you read you read a lot of things today across. And, and you know what one of the most common things is that you read? I put this right here. The need for people to preface what they say, this is so common now, with a description of their intersectional um, you know, um, factors. There, with almost like they're bona fides, you know? So you see what I see there. Instead of just making my point, they'll, you have to say something like, well, as a trans woman of color, comma, and by prefacing it with that, it's almost like I've said, oh, you really better listen to me. I might as well have said, as someone with a degree in, you know, you know, it's always annoying when people have, you ever know people that overly tout their, overly tout their credentials, you know what I mean? It's like everything they say is, I'm a doctor, man. Was the guy um, in Ghostbusters when they're in the elevator and the guys go, what is the deal? What are you guys doing? He goes, back off, man. I'm a scientist. You know, you can't talk to me. I'm a scientist. Well, it's almost like these, the, your your identity markers become like, an, um, become the way that people used to say, that's doctor so-and-so to you. I have my doctorate. People who... Which has never been very popular. <laughs> it's never been a way for anyone to really like or respect you. Uh, I've been teaching a long time, and I know there. Are, I happen to know, because students will tell you this. I happen to know a few professors in different places who have a habit of always telling everybody, always reminding everybody what it, <laughs> some degree they have. And you know, it's shocking. Shockingly, uh, no one's ever all that impressed by it. It never makes people go, oh. You know, I was I wasn't sure whether I respected you, but now that you've thrown that in my face, you know, like you, there's there's no need for that. And this is almost like a replacement of that, to say, well, as a, you know, as a gay man who grew up poor, and politicians do that stuff because they want to get, they feel like they need to show solidarity. So you'll see that they're always saying, I grew up the son of a whatever. You know, they got to tell you they're. How they're they're normal, they suffer, they and you know, a lot of times there are there's a desire for quotas. So that um, people will feel like they 
it, what it does is it reduces people really to their to these factors. It's like I'm looking to hire someone. Let me see what let me see what I've got so far. Three women, couple of dudes. Hey, no Hispanics here. Okay, let me write that down. You know, wait a minute. Anybody? No Asians. Okay. So in other words, then when I look at you as a possible person that I might hire, you see, I, I'm looking at you in the shallowest terms. Who are you? I don't care. What do you believe? What do you think? Who are you deep down? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Blah, blah, blah. Are you even good at the job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The point is, you're Asian, and we ain't got none of those yet. So come on in. You know, It's like, oh, that's all I am? You've sized me up on the basis of the most shallow possible things? This runs so contrary to a Christian view of people where it's flipped. A Christian view of people says all this stuff on the wheel, hardly relevant at all. Very, very minor. Because there are so there are deeper things about people that are infinitely more important about that tells me who they are. And this other stuff's whatever, you know. But yet this view, this intersectional view, sort of reduces people to these things. And you know, this chart is not the only one. You could have several others. The, you know, as I said, I don't know where it would end, frankly, because there are so many different isms. There are so many different ways. Well, how how then does this have an effect on this uh, this overall critical theory we've talked about? Well, what's happened then is all the things on that wheel, all those categories of different things, are now part of. Critical theory wants to get on top of all those, wants to study every one of those and make its own sub-discipline so that now they've all become their own domain. So you start looking at a lot of colleges and universities, for example, at the, what do they offer? What do they offer? What are the kind of courses they offer? Well, you know, when you were in school, it might have been like, well, you know, European history, you know, intro to psychology. You, know, you, you remember all the kind of courses you might have taken. Statistics, depending on what you're doing, you know, advanced chemistry. But now you get all these kind of study programs that I dare say, you know, 40 years ago would have looked strange in a course offering. People wouldn't have known, what, what is that? But there are, there are um, courses and even full programs with names like these. And all of these in that paragraph I took from actual, actual course studies across the universities. But you've got gender studies, critical race studies. There are black studies. There was a course called The Black Experience. There are whiteness studies. I'm not kidding. Whiteness studies. Sometimes they call it critical whiteness studies. There's a thing called queer theory. Now you might say, now wait a minute, isn't, isn't queer like a slur you're not supposed to use? The, the rules are changing as, all the time. And at this moment in history, that's okay to say that they like that word now. They call it that, queer theory. Um, Chicano studies. Intersectional theory or intersectional studies. You can take a class in it transgender studies, there are more than one kind of course that will have LGBT or some configuration in the title, or the word queerness will be in the title. Um, there's a course description I put here from Brown University. talks about critical race theory offshoots such as, and I guess these are shortened, I don't even know what these are, but you see how they, this is from, these are their words, tribal crit, lat crit, and Asian crit. I guess that means criticism or critical. I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time keeping up with this stuff myself. But all of it has to do with that same stuff, that same critical theory, where you deconstruct the norms, and you know we end up 
we end up, I, I would say, in a, in, a, in a sort of degraded experience of public relationships and everything with people. How can, we, how can people relate the way they're supposed to relate when everybody is just sizing everybody up by the shallowest features and then ranking everyone according to who oppresses whom at all times? What are the results of that kind of thing? What what will that do to people? How will that make? What's that bound to do inside of everybody if they get absorbed? Well, let's think about it. A couple of things it's definitely going to do is it's going to it'll cause the people who are always being told you're the bad ones, you're the oppressor class. They it builds resentment in them, doesn't it? How you want to go every day, day after day, and everyone just looks at you as you're the bad guy, you're the bad guy, you're the bad guy, you're the bad guy, you're the bad guy. and so unfortunately. There are reactionary movements. And sometimes I'll look, and there are these, they're, they're sort of underground, but there are these movements of mostly younger white guys. And they're very hostile and mad. Now, maybe they got their own problems anyway, but I'll tell you what hasn't helped is, is them hearing for, for however many years that they're the problem and that, that there's something wrong with them being demonized. A young mind just takes that, doesn't always respond well to that. Now, some of them just roll with it, or some of them just feel built guilty about it. Oh, man, I'm terrible. But some of them, some of them go and form their own groups and say, you know what? It's us against them, I guess. <laughs> they hate us. And so I think you, I think one of the unfortunate side effects of this thinking is you are, this is a recruiting tool for some pretty bad guys who would love to take the disaffected in fact, I can think of a few things that help would help grow a white supremacist group better than this. Because even some young men that wouldn't ordinarily think that way, you're going to make them think that way by constantly vilifying them. So that's one unfortunate thing. Another thing is, just like I said, the constant victim mentality. There are so many younger people who are talented. They could do a lot with their lives. They could be leaders. They could do a lot of things. But it's hard for you to reach your potential when all you think about all the time about yourself is, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. I mean, this is an old one, right? We used to be told this by self-help people and, and motivational speakers. Don't think of yourself as a victim! And then, But apparently, some other people are getting the opposite message. By all means, think of yourself as a victim! That's the way to go! It's like somebody is selling this bill of goods. Want to be happy in life? Think of yourself as a victim! One surefire way to be filled with joy is to always be thinking of yourself as a victim. This isn't just as patently false. It makes me think the enemy is just is just having a having a great day, just sowing this nonsense into the population and destroying the minds of people with it, and destroying their self-esteem. And because he th- he loves it, he's throwing a party. Look how miserable everybody is. <laughs> it's fantastic. Because people will be miserable. So the results of this are not good in the population of this way of thinking. And obviously it's just antithetical to Christian unity. The gospel cuts down through all this. He has broken down the middle wall of partition. You know, the family of God is obviously the most diverse organization on planet Earth. It's got everybody in it. Of all walks, of every kind, of every type. And, And when they stand there... In, as we used to, as the old preachers used to say, in the shadow of the cross or at the foot of the cross, what's the ground like? 
It's level. That's a metaphor, they would say that. Preachers used to say that all the time. It's, in other words, you, well, I was poor. Well, I was this. Well, I struggled with this kind of thing. Well, I had this temptation. Well, I was like this. Well, I was, I, I never had the use of my arms. Well, I was always like this. Well, I was, I grew up in a place where we were like the lowest caste. Where there, all the different people, all redeemed, will all stand there. And, and what's going to matter most isn't all that stuff. But it's who they are now. And they're all now the same. We're all in Christ. And so in the kingdom of God, those things don't work anymore. There's no caste system up there anymore. All that stuff, all that ableism and sexism and all those isms, they don't exist in the kingdom of God. 